Topping Talks. Hundred and five hours a week can't be beat. Welcome to Topping Talks. Topping Talks is a Topping Tribune production, and today's episode is proudly sponsored by Topping Technologies and ExpressVPN. Topping Talks is also on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. Topping Technologies is an IT value-added resource and services company with a special proficiency in security. Heck, I see their founder at least twice a day. Happy to say, Wayne Hanselman, brilliant. If you're a business in Texas that could use a hand, you can reach us at sales at toppingtechnologies.com. Also, are you part of the 3.6% of Americans who still care about their privacy? If you are, then perfect. ExpressVPN can assist. Even though 96% of stats are made up on the spot, ExpressVPN can give 100% guarantee via their 30-day back money guarantee. Now, without further ado, I'm proud to say today I'm interviewing David Lusk, who is the IT security manager at one of the most major respected restaurants in the industry. David, thank you so much for coming on the show. Hey, thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Absolutely. So kind of winding back the clock a couple of years, how do you first get into IT? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, great questions. Um, I've been curious since a small child, and I had a radio. Um, it was it w- could record. It was a cassette player that could record audio that was playing on the radio, right, like live. When I was a little kid. It was a long time ago. And I used to sit around and try to record a song so I could then learn how to play it on guitar, right, okay. as a little kid. Yeah. And I wound up taking that radio apart to figure out how it worked i could never figure out how to put it bar- back together i was like eight <laughs> years old that was kind of my intro into there's these things called electronics and magnets and coils and induction and uh, that kind of got me started just as a, as a pretty young kid and eventually uh, i wound up making my way through high school and getting in the navy you know after uh, many years of <laughs> you know youth and struggle and fun stuff but uh the navy was good to me it was a good time it was, it was good Appreciate your service. What inspired you to join the particular branch of the Navy? Uh, the Navy, I had a lot of people in my family. So my, my dad was a Marine. Um, my unc- both my uncles were in the Navy. My brother was in the Navy. So there's, there's a lot of history of it in the family. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. And what do you first do when you first join? Uh, well, like everyone does, right? You go to basic you know, boot camp and all that good stuff. But essentially, um, I was an electronics technician. At least that's what they called it back in my day. I focused on the communication side. So all ship-based communications um, from receiver, transceiver to antenna, right, end device, computing, LAN networks, fiber, just everything, you know, communications. Um, It was a long school pipeline. Uh, There's some running jokes in the Navy about electronics techs because a lot of us, I say us because I'm still one, but, you know, super smart, super techie, but not so good in the business sell stuff type sense, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, But... I've got some experience with them, so that's I've kind of overcome that a little bit, you know what I mean? But it's a work in progress. But yeah, um, so while I was on in the Navy, I was uh, responsible for ship-based communications on a destroyer, which was awesome, QBG-69, USS Nervous. Anyone out there, look up. Oh, that's awesome. Um, and yeah, we, we did a tour. We went over to the Persian Gulf. Uh, that was uh, like 2000, yeah, 2000. Uh, when the coal got hit, if anyone remembers when the USS Coal got blown up, she was our relief. Like, we literally, oh, really? we did a U-turn in the Straits of Hormuz because she was our relief, and they needed her missiles in theater, and we couldn't leave. So we did a U-turn in the Straits of Hormuz. It was pretty awesome. Wow. <laughs> and so we wound up staying, you know, a couple extra months or so there. Um, and while I was there, though, so anyone out there thinking about joining up, you know, 
yes, service to your country is great, but just word of caution, like stuff happens. Like I broke my spine. Oh wow! How? Uh, I fell on board the ship. I wish there was a really cool story to tell you, but the truth is, we were playing basketball and I fell. Oh no! But I broke my back. Compression fracture, L four. You know what I mean? Wow. So you know whether you get shot at or you're playing basketball, body parts get injured while you serve in the military. You know, um, so people out there just be mindful of that stuff happens absolutely um but yeah uh so that's kind of where i got my intro into information security so i was you know i was the crypto tech i was responsible for the encryption keys and the ky 58s and the 56s and you know so what's a ky what's the um, just for the folks post that so it's a it's a little like a little four inch box thing and you load an encryption key on it and then you can use that to load the encryption key into a radio mm-hmm. right so like pulling your field comms and that type of thing so, and in the, in the radio shack on the ship, right, there's all these encryption devices, and I was one of two dudes on the, or people, sorry, on the whole ship that could even touch this stuff. So, oh, really? Um, it wasn't the store, right? Was it, the it wasn't the radio shack the store? No, no, okay. no. Radio, okay. like, <laughs> on board okay. the ship. Um, but, you know, that's just responsibilities and stuff to do when you're tied to your security clearances and what schools do they send you to, and they got a reason for everything they do, and but that was where I got my first sort of intro into it. Uh, we we installed our ship was the first ship to deploy to a, f- to a fleet essentially, um, secure SMTP like secure email. You know what I mean that type of stuff. Mind you, this was like I said like two thousand right. So this yeah. is twenty plus years ago. Um, but you know that's the time when ships were being outfitted with computers. I mean personal computers, not just you know oh really industrial controls. So that stuff's been in ships for a long time, but. Yeah. You know, like back then it was Windows NT and there were workstations, every shop, quote unquote shop, right? Like a group of gunner's mates or a group of electronics technicians. Everyone's got their own little shop on the ship and each shop has a computer. Mm-hmm. Well, those all got, you know, networked and connected to the network. So now all the officers and the sailors and you know, everyone could check their email and send, yeah. send a note home and that type of thing. Um, and then the message traffic system that was used on the ship. So it's it's a network, it's a LAN, right? It's got an antenna attached to the ship and that's how the ships send communication traffic back and forth. I was responsible for that system. And that was the first real entry into like real networking. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I, I understood RF and basic electronics and communication systems, but when it came to, you know, networked computers and how you relay messages, that was my first intro into, into that. And it was a old school HP Unix based system. So oh, no way. if it ever died, you just had to literally like reload the tapes. If you've ever yeah. done that before, like it's literally <laughs> like old dat looking tapes, like magnetic tape, pretty cool stuff. Um, yeah. Uh, so we went over there, fractured my spine, came back. I did I, my last year and a half, I was basically assigned to the, the hospital doing physical therapy and all that good stuff you know, for, yeah. my, for my back. For recovery. So they took care of it, you know what I mean? Like, but it was work. I had to relearn how to walk. I mean, it was, it was, it was pretty brutal. But, you know, everyone goes through stuff, and this helped make me who I am today. I'm, you know, Absolutely. I am who I am but partly because of that. So I learned a lot. I learned about people. You know, you got to have people. That's one of the biggest lessons I learned in, in my time in the military. It was really like you got to have great people. If you want to do great things, you got to have great people. Um, that, that was a you know, very thankful for that lesson, you know, because up until that point, I was mid twenties and just kind of a little naive, maybe taking things for granted, not really appreciating the people and the opportunities that they represent. And yeah, 
But yeah, um, I think that's just part of growing up. Everyone's probably got some version of that story that they go through. Well, I would hope so. That's, that's when people don't realize that. That's what concerns me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, being on the destroyer was great. I loved being in like underway in the Navy. That was my favorite time. Like I, I what, really what did enjoy like what's underway. Is what's like underway? When you when your ship leaves the port and you go across the ocean, oh, essentially. Cool. Um, so, you know, you're you're out. You can't see land. Everywhere you can see in a 360 is just sky and water. Oh uh, you know, you see critters. You see seals, and there are flying fish. I never thought those were real, but I, they are real. I've seen them with my own eyes. They don't really fly, but they've got yeah. fins that look like wings, right? Yeah. Um, tuna, dolphins, watching dolphins, school tuna, you know, just things you see when you're on, on the outside watching the night sky. If you're in the South Pacific, you're in the most remote part on planet Earth. And if you go outside and just look up when you're on board a ship at night, it's amazing. Like, I can't even, like, it's indescribable. Like, it's more lights and more clear than you've ever seen anything in your life. Like, it's... Just it's you can see all the stars, I'm guessing. Everything. Yeah. It's like, it, it, it just removes the whole divide between we're humans and Earth. And there's this huge space thing out there, and, yeah. and you can see it. It's made an impact on me. It's pretty awe inspiring. Good stuff. Oh, it's actually it's one of the most beautiful things is when you get away from the cities and there's a lot less light around you. Like if you go camping somewhere, if you look up, yeah. you can see so many stars. Yeah. It's beautiful. I love it. I love it. There's. Um, I just got back from a trip back to the East Coast, and uh, we were walking some land, and man, just being out in the woods in nature, like just. I can just find a tree and just sit down. You know, it's quiet. Like you're, it's remote. You're in the yeah. woods and just, you know, maybe there's a creek running by and the breeze blowing through the forest. It's, it's so peaceful. I love it. It's, it's a great way to kind of reset the, the brain. You know, especially if there's no cell phone reception, which yeah. is harder and harder yeah. these days. <laughs> <laughs> just turn that guy off, right? But yeah. Um. So then, I, when I got out of the Navy, I went. I joined from the East Coast, so when I got out, I drove across the country. So I left from San Diego. I went, sp spent like a week in Vegas. Uh, this is after I left the Navy, and uh, then I drove um, to Houston from Vegas to Houston, and then ultimately from Houston to to the East Coast. So I've driven across the country. That was fun. That was oh my gosh. That was that was pretty fun times. And um, yeah, you know, when I I thought I had a, I was young and thought I had a plan. You know, I was saving my money and my whole goal was to do one tour six years get out go to college that was that was my plan yeah um got out went back east i was enrolled in college there and i was just steadily looking for a job this is like 2003 um and it's upstate south carolina and there was not much in the it communications information security field 20 years ago yeah in that part of the country and I look, I was pretty well qualified, had experience, and I just was beating my head. I was going to school, trying to find a job, just grinding like yeah. everyone does. You know what I mean? And a buddy of mine from the Navy, he got in touch with me, and he was living out here in, in Dallas. He's like, hey, what are you doing? And I'm like, working, trying to work, going to school, just grinding, you know? He's like, well, do you can do that here. Just find a job. We'll start a band. Because him and I had played in a band, rock band stuff, when, I was at, when we were in the Navy together. We were on the same ship. Oh, cool. So he had gotten out, moved out here. He contacted me. He was like, just move out here, you know? Why not? Find a job. Let's start a band. So I'd, and I kind of said, like, if I could find a job, I would do that. Like, why yeah. not? Right? I'm still, I'm, I was still pretty young. Didn't have a wife or kids or anything. You know, it's like, why not? Yeah. Um, and I started looking for a job. And 
uh, Hitachi High, uh, Technologies America. So they make the semiconductor plasma etchers that the big chip manufacturers use. And they used to have a research and development lab over by the airport here in DFW. Um, so Bob Carson, shout out to you. Love that guy. He's, he's the guy that hired me. But um, so had the phone interview. This is while I was on the East Coast. And then I knew, like, I just felt like, you ever been in that position where you're like, if I could just meet this person face-to-face, shake their hand, look them in the yeah. eyes and have a talk, I know I can get this job. Right. So I called the guy back, and I'm like, look, is there any way, like, I can come out there to meet you and, you know, just making that case, you know? And, and, and they – I was young and yeah. pretty naive. I didn't know this was a thing, right? But um, they sent me a company credit card and bought a plane ticket and flew me out here for the interview, and there's a whole story there, too. So don't, don't show up late to an interview, folks. When you finally get your break, don't be late. Um, or you're going to need to be lucky. So they fly me out here for the interview. And uh, my buddy that talked me into looking in the first place, he, f- he drove me from the airport to the first interview. Like The day I got here, I had that first interview. He drove me. So I kind of knew the lay of the land as far as riding in someone else's car. Here's the airport. Here's their office. Here's where he lives. And, of course, they, you know, they wanted to ask me back for the next day for a second interview. I'm like, yes, awesome. I'll, I'll be here. And uh, my buddy offers me his car, right? I'm fresh off the street, just got here. I don't even live here yet. He's yeah. like, here's my car. Take the first Royal Lane exit off of 635, and you'll be good. So if you know the DFW area, Royal Lane runs all the way through Dallas. Yeah. <laughs> and I was coming from the east side, Rockwall 635. So I took that Royal Lane exit and drove down Royal Lane all the way through Dallas. Uh-oh. As a new guy that didn't live here, didn't know the area. Without Google Maps. and I Without Google yeah. Maps. <laughs> And I showed up late to that second interview. Yeah. Ultimately, I got the job, you know, but I, I can still hear his words. He's like, because he told me, he's like, you know, I really didn't want to hire you because you were late. <laughs> yeah. He's like, but everything else, you knocked it out of the park, so that, and that's why I hired you, but you were late. He, he told me, like, the day <laughs> when, when, I, when I left them, not, no longer working, him and I met, and we had a beer, and he told me that story again. I just kind of <laughs> chuckled, you know, but thank you, Bob. Thanks for the shot there. And uh, so – Wound up getting the job during that interview process. Go back home, and uh, like I said, they gave me a company card, and I didn't have much stuff. I, I literally had, like, a bed, a dresser, uh, two guitars, and one amplifier. Yeah. And that's that's literally all the physical things I had on planet Earth. Um, so <laughs> got a U-Haul, and I loaded up those simple things in the U-Haul. It's a way big of a U-Haul than for this little bit of stuff I had. And so now I'm going to make the trek. It's like 4 o'clock in the morning. I'm going to leave from South Carolina and drive this U-Haul to Texas oh because geez. I've got a job and I'm going to move. Yeah. And I don't even have that much stuff in the thing. Um, so I get to the interstate. You know, my stuff's all loaded up. I'm gassed up. I get to the interstate. I'm, I'm driving. I don't, I'm not even one exit down the interstate. And I run over a possum. Oh, jeez. Right? Well, at the time, I didn't know exactly what I ran over, but I clearly I'd hit a critter. Like, I could yeah. tell that. So I pull over. And this possum, his teeth had just sh- completely shredded the entire brake lines. What? Like shredded, like the brake line of a U-Haul truck. So I'm looking. I can see the brake line. It's it's clearly leaking. And I've got the few possessions that I own in this truck, and I need to get to, to, to Dallas. Yeah. So I tied a knot in it. I walked over to a gas station. I bought a little hose clamp kit that they sell, and yeah. I just clamped it down as hard as I could and literally tied a knot in the brake line. And every time I stopped to buy gas, I would just buy a bottle of brake fluid to <laughs> that puppy up, man. But it made it. Um, got here. I drove it all the way through. 
And I, when I left, when I dropped that U-Haul truck off, I left a note because it was like a Sunday. And I left a note in the dash. Hey, the brake line's busted. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I called them oh, yeah. that Monday. And yeah, that was one heck of a trip. I was determined to make it here. You know what I mean? Love that persistence. Yeah. Just whatever it takes, make it happen. No excuses. And it was, you know, that job was pretty good. So I moved out here primarily to start a band. And, you know, we toured. We, we recorded music in studio. Um, we did the digital distribution thing for music. So and we, we did that. What was, was the band called? It was called Toe the Line. I like it. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was just sort of rock stuff that you that you would imagine you hear on a radio. Um, but, you know, I love playing guitar, and, and that band was a lot of fun, and we, we, we did some good stuff there. Um, but then while I was working the job at Hitachi, so – they had a research and development lab. So, you know, semiconductor manufacturing, plasma etching, a bunch of different gases, a d- bunch of different pressures and a vacuum etch chamber. So, you know, one of their customers would be, would be sort of, hey, we're trying to get, you know, this measurement from this process and we're not quite able to hit our numbers here. And they would send it over to our lab and then we would do whatever we could to try and get them even better than what they were looking for. Um, and, and all the communications that happened there, kind of getting back to the infosec thing, they, Hitachi had that lab locked down really hard from a security communications hardening perspective. And part of my job was to make sure that those controls were effective and were in place. That was cool. But, you know, a lot of it was falling around a false floor, uh-huh. you, know, like, you know, like in a data center. It was yeah. not a data center. This yeah. was like a etch lab. But even in those labs, they got those raised floors. and. Oh yeah. All the plumbing, all the HVAC, all the water, all the gas manifold, everything runs through there. So when something breaks, someone's got to get oh, down geez. there and you fix, know, it. fix it, you know, and that, that's part of what I did, too. And ultimately, I think I decided I need to get paid for how I think and not what I'm able to physically do. Yeah. And, you know, that, a lot of that's tied into my history and my back and just physical ailments and stuff. But um, so that kind of led me back to uh, going back to school. Um, Collin County Community College has a great uh, cyber program for anyone in the area that's interested and curious. It's pretty affordable. I did their two-year program. It's awesome. So that's, you know, um, working at Hitachi, playing in the band, (coughs) and I was kind of looking around, okay, what am I going to do? Career-wise, i got to find something that's tangible and that I can grow with. And I saw that they had a uh, CCNA program there where essentially you take four classes and you could – the idea is more by the time you finish the fourth class, mm-hmm. you should be able to sit for the CCNA exam. Awesome. And I was like, okay, well, if I get a CCNA, then that's the entry back into that. Because I, mind you, I had all that Navy experience, but I didn't have any experience in the civilian sector at all. And I never really went through like a transition. Like I just went from the Navy to playing guitar in a band, working in a research lab. I kind yeah. of skipped the whole corporate route in, in a way. You know what I mean? It was yeah. different there. Um, but yeah, so going to school and did those first four classes, sat for the CCNA and Catherine Fent, shout out to her. She's a teacher over at Collin County. I had her for the first three of those classes, those CCNA classes. And the first day of the third class, she walked in and said, does anyone need a job? And of course I immediately raised my hand and I wound up getting an intern position at a SOC, like a butt in seat security operations center gig. I was at the time it was Alcatel Lucent. I don't know if they've been bought or submerged yeah. or whatever, but um, and it was it was in Plano. It was you know an actual sock with computer screens all over the place and pulling logs and doing pivot tables and digging through sims and you know yeah. IR type stuff. It was legit work. That's awesome. 
Um, and what's your favorite part about that? Um, that's a whole that's a whole new role. That's a that's night and day between the basketball too. The the thing that I enjoyed the most was observing the the smart techie infosec people that were able to communicate what they were doing to the people that were paying for it and me noticing like their ability to do that the better they got at that the better they did with their whole career oh. that was that was the thing that i really learned from that job i mean there were some cool techie stuff that we did mm-hmm. right like dumping through ir logs and sim things and you know trying to find bad like s- that stuff's yeah. cool and fun but at a high level business perspective seeing people that are scoped with designing, purchasing, and implementing solutions for business problems, and the better that they were able to tell the problem owner about what they were doing, the more they were able to sell. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, selling, selling, right? So mm-hmm. um, that really made an impact for me. Um, so I was there. That's a sock job, Alcatel Lucent, and they wanted to hire me on. So I'm trying to figure out how I got done to the next step of my career path there. Sorry, I was just giving you a brief. No worries. They wanted to hire me on. This was like 20, I don't know, 14-ish or so, 2015. I forget, it's a little fuzzy, somewhere around there. And um, But they, d- they couldn't make room, right? Budget, headcount, all that stuff. They just couldn't make room. So my manager at the time at Alcatel, he's like, hey, you know, there's this huge insurance company coming to town. They're building this massive campus. I'm sure they're hiring. You should try. And so I did. And I wound up getting that position. Nice. And, uh, you know, huge uh, insurance company. And, I mean, the people that I met there, and they hired me on there. They were building out um, their version of sort of an internal security operations center, if you will. They called it something different, but they were building their own internal version of that. And they hired me. um, I was part of one of their first, one of the, one of the first few hires that they did for the for their sim team. So oh, that's awesome. They they had purchased a product and they were looking to implement the product and get all the log sources in and start looking for bad, right? Yeah. Um, and so when they hired me in, it was you know they just hired me in to sort of do that. Um, and I was there for I think I was there for a total of five years. And you know of course by the time I left there, I was sort of running that team. Yeah. Product owner and then ultimately just running that team. And uh, again. That goes back to people. Um, that was the best part of that that role was some of the people that I got to work with. Um, you know, people that do information security for a living, the the good ones. I don't want to say the good ones, like the ones that actually know. Yeah. You know, not just keyboard strokes, but how to integrate different systems to do really amazing things. That those people, they're great. Like oh yeah. you need those people. Absolutely. Those are the ones that we need to sort of aggregate and. Mostly curate, you know, like Absolutely. take care of those people. They're, they, we need more of us. Um, and then while I was there, so in 2012, I'm going to take a little bit of a derailment here, but in 2012, uh, my father-in-law, one of my most favorite humans on planet Earth, I guess ex-father-in-law, but anyway, still one of my favorite humans on Earth, he got me a Mr. Beer Kit for Christmas. Oh, really? And I'd never made beer. I didn't know that you could make beer. Oh, I, yeah. I didn't know that was a thing. Um, and so it was me... Uh, and one of his sons and him, and the three of us, had g- he had gotten us three beer kits. And so this was Christmas time, December, and we made an agreement, everyone make your beer and bring it to the Super Bowl party in 2013. Right? Yeah. So that's you know Febu- late February, that's six to eight weeks, that's about how much time it takes to make a batch of beer. So we did that. We all made our beers, you know, made the gallon, which was like eight beers or nine beers, um, brought them, and I made the best. 
Oh, nice. I, I won. It was only a competition of three. But yeah, still I, was, I was hooked. Like, yeah. I was hooked. And then right around that same time, some of the guys that I was working with at, um, at that insurance company, um, they were, were beer lovers. Like, we're still friends yeah. to this day. We still go on beer runs to brewery tours up in Oklahoma or wherever. You know, yeah. like we're still really tight. Um, anyway, so they through them, I discovered a beer, the Lakewood Temptress. Have you ever had it? Oh, what's that? So Lakewood Brewery is here in Dallas, and uh, they have a stout beer. It's a milk stout called the Temptress, and it's a double double chocolatey dark stout beer, milk stout. It's delicious. And when I tasted it, my first thought was, if I could make this beer, I would I would not buy any more beer ever again. Really? And that's right about the time I got the Mr. Beer Kit and made the beer. Yeah. So that kind of got me jazzed up, energized of. I can make this stuff. Yeah. You know? Like, it's fun. I enjoy it. Um, so that led me to meeting someone that we worked at the same company. We didn't necessarily work together, but he was already brewing on, like, a 10-gallon system oh really? in his garage, and he lived close to me. Yeah. So I, of course, walked up to him in the elevator one day. I said, hello, my name's David. I hear you make beer. You know, we, we brewed together. I brewed with him in his garage for, like, three years. That's awesome. Um, and then... Uh, built a house, and the house included a 20 by 30 detached shop, which was built for the express purposes of making beer. Oh, really? Not as a business, yeah. you know, not because at the time this was just passion, hobby. Oh, yeah. Um, but I bought a half barrel um, spike brewing system. So that is, spike is a, they make home brewing equipment. A half barrel essentially means that you yield 15 gallons every time you brew it. The boil kettle oh, wow. holds about 22 gallons of liquid in it volume wise um and so uh, you know there's a it's all stainless steel it's all grain there's a hot liquor tank there's a mash tun there's a boil kettle there's fermenters there's a glycol chiller everything that you would expect to see in a production uh, a production brewery mm -hmm. so i like to say the the rig is it's professional quality it's just not commercial scale yeah right? and I, I brewed on that rig for about three years Two and a half years, I guess. Started, I joined a brew club, um, started entering into homebrew competitions, started winning medals. Oh, uh, nice. Started aging stouts and whiskey barrels and doing all kinds of fun things. Um, and ultimately decided, okay, I'm going to take a shot at this. I, I started learning the, the business of it, started working up pro forma, you know, met with the Collin County uh, Small Business Association the Development Committee, SBABC, I think they call it. Um, to kind of go over my pro forma and look at my spreadsheets and help me get ready to start shopping for capital. Oh, cool. um, shopped it to banks, um, kind of got the thumbs up to proceed from the bank. And oh, nice. Then I kind of thought, well, let me see if I can, what kind of capital can I, private investment could I potentially generate? Mm -hmm. um, and did that. Like, the whole project was pretty much funded. And then uh, some personal life stuff happened and... I had to pause that project, right? Yeah. Um, so, but long story short is I love beer. I love making it. I love talking about it. I love fermentation. Um, I love coming up with new recipes and then trying to make it and sharing it and getting feedback and then tuning the recipe. Um, I love the math of beer. You know, the, the volume of it scales very well yeah. when, when you look at the business math of beer. Um, but from a business perspective, Anyone out there that's thinking they want to build a brewery, I'm sure you probably already know this, but it's very capital upfront. Yeah. So 
Uh, and mind you, I'm this is something I'm working on doing, so it's it's going to happen. But you know, it's you got to have all the money up front. So to to apply for a permit, I'm in Texas currently, so I'm going to talk about Texas, but. To apply for a permit from the TABC, you, the first question is, what is your location? Yeah, what's the TBAC? Is that the guy? Texas Alcohol Beverage Commission. Okay, They're gotcha. the ones that give you a brewery, a brewer's permit. Oh, a permit okay. to legally make and sell beer. Oh, okay. Right? So the, the one of the first questions on that permit application is, what is your location? And what that implies is you have commercial real estate. Yeah. And you have the ability to make beer, which means you have to have all the equipment to make so you have to have the location, you have to have the equipment, you have to have everything in place before yeah. you know to, to apply. They could potentially deny you. Potentially, right? Or I mean, there's hurdles, right? Yeah. Things happen. There's all you know, and so a lot, that's a lot of risk. And you're talking, you know, for a if you want to do say a ten barrel production system, so ten barrels, you know, a barrel of beer is. Two and a half, fifty-two point one gallons of beer, right? So if you're going to do five hundred, I'm doing rough math here, but five hundred, five hundred gallons of beer every time you produce beer, mm-hmm. right? That's the volume that you're looking at, and you're going to brew anywhere from four to seven times a week. You could do a double batch Monday, right? To be able to have enough volume to to sell to to have revenue to cover your one point five million dollars in startup cost, right? Oh wow! Like, you talk about building, you have to buy the 10 barrel production system, mm-hmm. right? It's all got to get plumbed. You're going to need glycol. You're going to need glycol chilling. Not to mention the bar. Like, there's. What, what's glycol? Glycol is an agent used in chilling. Oh, really? So it's got a freeze point much lower than water. So you can use glycol in piping to cool beer and maintain really? the temperature. So, like, if my beer is supposed to ferment at 68.2 degrees um, then I will have glycol going around that vessel and then I will control the temperature of the glycol to control the temperature in the vessel really oh yeah that's pretty cool and then is the temperature most vital during the fermentation process yes and then after it's a little bit more stable you can put it on a store shelf and yes okay yeah yeah the the temperature during fermentation is one of the most important things when you're making a beer whether it's at home or, or in a production brewery, um, I th- my it's debatable, right? But my opinion, most people would, would agree. But my opinion is the most important thing is cleanliness and sanitization. Like, if you know how to clean and sanitize things, and you know how to boil water, you can make beer. Yeah, really. Um, but yeah, so um, that brewery is a uh, that's a passion project that I'm working to build. Um, and then. So while I was with that insurance company, kind of going back to the InfoSec thing, um, two, two, two different business things there. At first, I thought, well, how, how on earth am I ever going to generate enough capital to fund building a brewery? Yeah. Right? And I thought, okay, well, I can, I'd already formed a business for the purposes of consulting, and I was, had the idea of pursuing government contracts. Um, like a lot of them, like yeah. writing, yeah. you know, bid proposals and you know, pursuing sort of service connected disabled veterans set aside contracts. Yeah. Ultimately, I decided that that was not something that I was going to pursue. Um, but in the more, I guess now, um, really, I'm gonna, I will be leveraging that business to. I kind of hinted at it earlier, but essentially connect 
um, business problem owners, so people that have information security-related business problems with business solution owners, right? Forfi, of course, loves us. Yep. But, I mean, something that I've experienced a ton of throughout my career in information security is, so there's no magic bullet. There's no silver special anti-deterrent against fraud and crime and cyber forensics. Like It'd be nice, but, yeah. Things <laughs> are going to happen. Yeah. However... There are really good products out there that can mitigate large chunks of business risk. Oh yeah. But they're not free and most companies don't have the budget. So that's kind of goes back to something that I was alluding to earlier, but something that I've learned through the course of my infosec career is the better I get at telling people if you spend this much money you buy down this much risk, the better I get at telling that story, the better my career goes. Absolutely. You know. And whether that's trying to, you know, on working for an employer and trying to get a business justification for this big spend for some new snazzy widget gizbang thing, yeah. it's the same concept. Absolutely. Or if I'm trying to help a potential client understand their R ROI versus what they're about to spend. It, in my head, it's the same thing. It's, yeah. it's just just different people, different perspective, different conversation, but the subject matter is still the same. Yeah. In my head, um, so yeah, um, Grace Space Consulting Services is a is a business, and I I leverage that business to connect business problem owners with business solution providers, um, and I'll be doing that. Uh, I'm still working my day job. I mean, you know, and you can't. <laughs> we all love to hustle, right? Like oh you've yeah. got the podcast. I've I've got things, but I I still have a day job. And until my side hustle has overcome my day job, I will continue to have a day job. You know what I mean? But that's a smart. That's a smarter move. I ch I chose to do a hundred eighty degree flip. But yeah. that's most successful entrepreneurs they keep their day job as long as possible, so you have that nice base, confirmed known income. And then once you have that pivotal moment when you know your hustle has more income than the, you know the day job, then you can make that more confident leap because you know, the water's a little bit more. You can see through the waters a little bit more. Yeah. We can get into people a little bit. I'd like to. Oh so yeah. kind of going back in time to when I was with this insurance company. Um, and they were actively hiring when, when they hired me. And then over the course of five years or so, I got to be more involved with hiring of other people, people that would be on our team or teams that we would work with in the future, that type thing. And, man, it, this is all cyber information security related, right? And oh yeah. There are People have different opinions on on how hiring gets done. Um, I don't think there's any necessarily right answer. I do think there's probably a few wrong candidate profiles. Oh yeah, <laughs> like there's certain things that if they happen, you should probably go the other way. But so w what am I talking about? So Fortune 100 type companies, huge companies, and they're going to go hire, right? So maybe they go out to some college campus somewhere multiple college campuses oh yeah. um, and maybe they even do things that aren't college campuses maybe they do like industry peer events right like we all get together and do like so these companies these fortune 100 companies will go there and they'll have little booths and they'll talk about themselves and their culture and who they're looking to hire um, and so there's that profile that candidate profile is pretty wide so you might get someone that's got no college experience and within that group of no college experience, you're going to have varying degrees of real-world experience, right? 
Well, I've worked with hiring managers that if you don't have any college, they don't want you. Oh, really? You're not a, you, like you go in the not a candidate pile. Like I've worked with people that that's their mentality. <laughs> wow. And I've tried to coach them and counsel them that you may be doing it not the most effective, optimum way, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, because there's plenty of people out there that started hacking because they didn't have a job or they a lot of people get into hacking because there's something they don't have. Yeah. And they can they uh, for a lot of people the attraction is I can make this thing that I don't have do something that it's not supposed to do. Yeah. That's there's a real tangible attraction to that type of Fascinating puzzle for a lot right. of people, too. A lot of people, that's how a lot of people get into it. And then you can wind up with somewhere between 13 years old and 18 years old running a global ransomware campaign. Yeah. Like, that guy can probably teach your IT department more about ransomware than the person selling your EDR solution. Let's yeah. be real. Like oh, yeah. So, and what do I mean by that? Okay, there's no right answer, and there's no real wrong answer, but I, I just encourage people that are hiring to have an open mind. Like, is this person coachable? Are they trainable? Can, can you, do they have that personality type where you can teach them what you want to teach them and then just let them go and be prosperous? Yeah. There's, there's different types of humans. That, that's one of the, my sort of things that gets me bent over about sort of corporate bureaucracy. Is oh, yeah. It's, it's more difficult to account for that personal human character, you know, yeah. which is the people are what make our company successful. Well, if I'm yeah. getting up on a soapbox, I apologize. Oh, no, 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 I agree. I think a lot of that is a lot of these companies, and I, I used to work at one of the largest tech companies. I worked at HPE for four years for inside sales, then Aruba for one year of field sales. And I've talked to hiring managers and just got curious, and a lot of them are just kind of constructed, or they're, they're put into these boxes. They're not allowed to deviate. And it's just one of those things where I think getting rid of a lot of those requirements will increase the sample size. So recently, I think about 18, 24 months ago, HPE, got rid of the mandatory you must have a bachelor's degree in order to be an inside sales rep, which I'm all for because sales is one of the most one of the most versatile things where you can, you know, start lemonade stand as a kid and start understanding the basic concepts of a business. And there's a lot of translation from that into the real world or, you know, bigger businesses. So I think a lot of the tech companies especially are starting to wake up to the fact that life experience is a lot more important than what a piece of paper might necessarily res recommend, even though you know there's there are some great cybersecurity programs and colleges. I mean, life experience is just worth so much more, in my opinion. I mean, are you actually breaking into the companies, seeing these threats, reacting, mediating in real time? That that's valuable experience. And a lot of those people are starting off young, and they may not necessarily have that college degree. But yeah, I think one of the most important things big businesses need to do to be continue to be successful is just chisel away at some of those requirements and some of the bureaucracy and decrease some of the levels of approval. And in order to hire someone, uh, some companies might take, you know, eight people to sign off on it. And it gets to a certain point when you have to ask yourself, how many of those signatures are really required? Or is yeah, this I think it's <laughs> a humans. I think humans can solve human related problems. That's at a fundamental level. That's, that's how I think about it. You know, um, it depends on the problem that you're hiring for. Like, what kind of solution provider do you need? Like, when you think about that human that you're going to hire for some role or some job, what is it that you, as the person doing the hiring, what do you need them to be able to do? And kind of go build from that. Um, you know, 
there's there's all different types of soft skills. I've heard that in uh, very large corporate settings where we hire for hard skills and we fire for soft skills, mm-hmm. right? So you don't necessarily need to walk your new junior security analyst up to a whole panel of auditors. Like you yeah. wouldn't set them up that way. Like you wouldn't. That's no. not something right. that would be done. So you know, you just have to keep in mind what is their skill set currently versus what I need to get done. Yep. I mean, but too many times from my experience, uh, people get wrapped up in uh, what degree, what school, um, yep. what project or funding have you, you know, done or implemented. I think that's a more valuable response than where did you go at school. Agreed. What projects have you implemented? What value have you returned to a business? Um, but again, you're not going to ask that type of question to someone interviewing for a junior information security analyst role, right? Like that's not. It just depends on who you're interviewing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think humans create corporations, and we work for them, and we can we can fix a lot of these problems. Yeah. Um, so crypto. Let's get into crypto, shall Absolutely, we? Absolutely. Yeah. Humans and human problems, Here right? So FTX. Oh yeah. Right. Not financial advice. I am <laughs> not a financial advisor. Do your own research. So FTX, right? So you've got SBF, Sam Bateman Fried, um, and there's a lot of uh, information out there. Speculation. Right? Twitter, mainstream media, news outlets. um, There's a lot out there going on. But at a a very high level, for sure, um, FTX was using a token that they generated – What's it just for the layman's terms, like for parents at, or, or folks at home? What, what's a token? Or just you know, conceptually, what is the technology behind it? Okay, so FTX, the company, is a centralized exchange, meaning um, it's a centralized place where people can exchange their fiat currency, so in yep. our case, dollars, yep. for some flavor of cryptocurrency Bitcoin, Ethereum, VRA, Gallup. There's a long list of them, right? Um, because you cannot do that so, so going sim- to Bank of America, right? Like, you can't do yeah. that. So it's similar to, like, in the old movies, you would see a currency exchange where, you know, you go to an airport, you're going to another country, you're like, hey, here's my U.S. dollar, give me some pesos or give me some francs or something like that. Yes. But now it's all digital. Yes. Um, and that FTX was a centralized exchange, okay? Um, Which means it's all in one place. Yes. In layman's terms. So going back to the original white paper of the OG, Bitcoin, um, in general, okay, People out there, peers, they might prosecute me. but um, So essentially, at a very high level, um, Bitcoin, as it was written, was meant to be designed in purpose to be a decentralized public ledger for, for digital payments. And what's decentralized? Just for the right, right. So decentralized means that no one owner, entity, player of that system can control the system. It's not just on one. It's not just on my PC, and I'm controlling it. It's a, a spread across digitally. Correct. Yep. Yep. So you get into all these computers that are crunching hashes to verify prime numbers, right? And that is all part of mathematical operations of the blockchain to prove the information contained within a block has been verified. That's at a high level, that's that's what we're talking about here. So getting back to FTX, centralized exchange, which is, think about it, right? So centralized exchange for something that was designed to be a decentralized public 
ledger. Sounds a lot easier to attack. Right, right. Yeah. So now you've got, and and FTX is not the only one. Yeah. But they've they're, the they're one of the ones that did some very criminal activity. Yeah. Right? So what does that criminal activity look like? So, um, at a high level, without getting into very specifics, because there's still a lot of forensics accounting that's going on to to verify a lot of this activity. I mean, Congress is involved at this point, right? So yeah. it's it's getting pretty heavy. But at a high level. Um, Sam Bankman-Fried, as CEO of FTX, was actively leveraging uh, user, customer, client money to make loans to other businesses and people for money that they didn't have. Yep. That's illegal. doesn't matter if you're in the Bahamas or not. That's, yeah. a, that's <laughs> illegal. Um, and, and he's been arrested. So um, what do I think is going to happen? I think because you've already heard people like, Kinsler and other uh, Congress women and men say that they want to regulate those centralized exchanges. <laughs> so, uh, and then you've got, I think it was just earlier this week, the Attorney General's Office for the U.S. is saying that they, they're considering prosecuting Binance, which is the largest in the world centralized exchange. And that where are they headquartered? Like uh, Hong Kong, I believe. Yeah. 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 So, um, there's some macroeconomic things occurring for sure. I mean, you've you've got India and China and the whole Russia BRICS thing, and and more. They're trying to get more companies to not companies but nations being BRICS. So what is BRICS? It's a it's another form of agreement on how international banks settle their agreements. That's what BRICS is meant to do. Um, and it's not new. This is, think about all the flavors of this. There's another cryptocurrency called XRP. This one blows my mind, I, and I still shake my head every time I say this, but this is true. XRP was built by big banks yeah. for big banks yeah. to replace the SWIFT system. The SWIFT system is that international reconciliation between international banks. When you say layman terms, terms of international reconciliation, is that banks paying each other back in loans, or just um, what is that process? Um, it's how they... S- so, yes, but there's more to that, too, right? So if, if I'm a bank in, say, Switzerland, and I want to buy oil futures, right? Well, I'm going to pay in uh, maybe Swiss francs because I'm in Switzerland. But all those are internationally agreed upon to be settled in dollars, right? Yeah, so now i got to go to an exchange and exchange yeah. my Swiss francs for dollars to buy these oil futures. A lot of Americans do not realize how... Really fortunate we are. The U.S. dollar is standardized on oil. That's why it's worth money. Like big, big reason it's worth anything right now. Yeah. Every country, if they want to buy oil, they got to exchange it for a U.S. dollar to then buy the oil. As far as I understand. Yeah, yeah, for international settlements. So then you get into something like BRICS, right? Which is it's Brazil, Russia, India, China. That's uh, an acronym. Yeah, it's it's an acronym, and they want to have their own version for international settlements. And they want it to be their own version of a cryptocurrency. You can see where this is going. Yeah. Right? Meanwhile, in the U.S., so we, we don't have any regulation. No, There's no framework. And we've got humans defrauding humans yep. on a centralized exchange. Yeah. So I think how the government could be helpful, one of the ways they could be helpful is Instead of trying to take a hammer approach and just regulate crypto into obscurity, I think that they should provide a framework for how crypto can exist and how it can operate between government 
banks and private institutions. They could do that. that yeah. That's something that's in their wheelhouse that they're pretty good at, providing frameworks of here's here's what here's where we draw the line. Yeah, like when this framework security is like, here's the recommendations right. if you want to follow them. Here are the, the minimum saying. requirements for us to think that you you might be secure. Exactly. Uh, but they haven't done that. Instead, they're arguing and debating over a centralized product and crypto bad. It's, yeah. you know, it's it's not a very intelligent debate that I'm seeing happen, Well, well which is discouraging, you know. Most, most debates in the US, in government when it comes to technology is usually comical at most when, I mean, it's just they don't know what they're talking about. Yeah. Like if you ask, remember they had Zuckerberg a couple of years ago on Congress, they go, so uh, how, you don't charge anyone to use your service. How do you make money? It's like, <laughs> <laughs> they don't even realize. Yeah. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, w- I'm not here to solve all the world's problems, but. Um, I, in general, I, I think that blockchain technology is here. It's not going away. Um, will it ever be used as currency? I don't know. Um, is an NFT a future? Is it a security? I, I don't know. Um, what I do know is that NFTs are already being used as an exchange of contracts for anything sold digitally. That's already happening. Yeah. It's already today. NFTs are more than just JPEGs. Yeah. Funny little monkeys that you use for yeah, your Twitter yeah. avatar. There are like people are buying and selling homes with this stuff. Yeah, they're securing contracts with the government with this stuff. Like NFTs are they're non fungible tokens, meaning it's been tokenized on a blockchain in a way that can verify that you own. You can show digital ownership of a physical asset. So if you own a Rolex, there's people that are making projects that will tokenize ownership of your Rolex. It essentially really? creates a token. That gets uh, associated with your Rolex, and then that token gets hashed on a blockchain. And everyone in the world is almost like a registry for the Rolex, and everyone in the world knows, hey, this serial number belongs to David. That's his. Yep. And the same thing is happening for other types of luxury goods. Really? So you've got real estate already getting in on the NFT contract thing. That's already. So when I say contract thing, it's a non-fungible token, meaning you can take any asset, digitize it, and then tokenize that digital asset. And that token is in a part of a blockchain forever, and it's in a decentralized public ledger, right? That's right. what uh, that's what an NFT is. And there's uh, tons of use cases, so w- ones that we can just talk about, right, that are already happening. It's public information. So Starbucks is now dropping NFTs into their customers' wallets in their loyalty app, right? So if you have the wow. Starbucks app on your phone, yeah. you, and they're doing it in a very clever way. They're doing it in a way that y- the customer may not even be aware that it's an NFT, like you, you, you might just get like a little cute looking balloon icon thing. But if you have this cute little balloon icon, I'm making this up for everyone knows, right. but as an example. Exactly. Yeah. If you have that, then maybe it's a 15% discount on your order and you just present it at the counter and they scan it and you own that NFT and you're entitled to a 15% discount. Yeah. There's lots of companies that are tying this into their loyalty rewards programs, yeah. which led me to a business idea. Oh, yeah. Um, if, if this, is, this is just brainstorming stuff, so no real tangible business here, but back to the beer thing, right, and NFTs and crypto and all that stuff. Yeah. So one of the things that I always struggled with around beer is, so as a brewer, I, I plan the recipe, I brew the beer, I package the beer, I make it available to potential clients or customers, I get feedback, I talk with them about this beer, but there's no way for me to get that feedback of, me describing the product, the beer, 
if that person or individual is not there, like physically yeah. in the womb right. at that time. So what if I had a way to where I could put that story of what this beer is, what the ingredients are, how I made it, why I made it, its flavor profile, the ways I enjoyed this history and story of this beer. Yeah. I can put that on the beer label when it's in the store. That'd be cool. And then a user just has to scan it yeah. with their phone and then they can hear the story of that beer. Right. That'd and what really neat. So pretty neat stuff. And then with essentially QR codes is what I'm saying, right? Yeah. And the great thing about in Texas, beer label laws, you can add a QR code to a beer label and you don't have to redo your beer labels for the Texas Alcohol Beverage Commission. It's really? not required. They regulate the labels? Oh, the yeah. Designers? Every beer oh, label geez. you get that's got a UPC code, yeah. it's got to go through the process. Do they approve, like, the graphic designs as well? They do. Oh, really? They do. They do. Yeah. But you can add a QR code to it, and you don't have to make any changes to your label. So there's that. Right, but think about it. Like from a brewer's perspective now, um, not only can a potential customer scan my QR code that's on my beer at the store, and me, the brewer, is not even there, and they can hear me tell the story of the beer, right? Well, there's that's good. That gets me an opportunity to get my story right in the hands of my customer, my, my potential customer. And Absolutely. I can start getting all sorts of analytics off of the data, right? Yeah. So we're IT guys. We understand oh yeah. this type of thing, right? If someone clicks a QR code, I can figure out what their GOIP address was when they clicked it. Yep. Where were they? Where, what store were they at? What were they doing? And I can also send push notifications. There's requirements and you know there's things you got to make sure that you take care of. Okay. But you could potentially send them push notifications and get them to opt in. And now you've got the beginnings of a loyalty program for your brewery. Yeah, right? that'd be genius. So lots of different ideas of things that can be done. You know, it'd also be a great way to get instant customer feedback in terms of yeah. they could scan it and be like. What do you think we should maybe tweak this? Did you like it? You know, no change as is. And think about it, right? So un are you familiar with Untapped? No, what's that? So it's an app on people's phones. It's for beer. Um, there's a similar thing for wine. It's called uh, Vino, I think it's called. Um, but essentially, so I'm going to talk about Untapped. It's an, it's an app that you get on your phone. And essentially, you can look up. So if you're drinking a beer, you can look up the name of the beer. And you can check in that beer. Like, I'm having this beer at this place with this person at this time. Yeah. And at the end of the year, you can look back and see, like, who all you drank with, what were your favorite styles. Beer lovers love on That's pretty cool. You know what I mean? Yeah. And think about what that started out as, though. That just started out as a bunch of beer lovers wanting yeah. to share their love of beer with their other beer-loving friends. Yeah. Right? And now they're selling advertisements. Oh, it's brilliant. Right? When you when you scroll through Untapped now, and I can see, oh, Nicholas just checked into this beer over here. Yep. And then right below that, it'll be some ad for Liquid Death Bar. Oh, yeah, there you, you know go. I mean? that's, that's how they do it, you know? Yeah. Um, but back to your point, right? So now we've got company congressmen interviewing CEOs of companies about subject matter that the congressmen and women don't understand. You know, at some point we've got to get the science and the engineering to have proper representation. You know, nice. like I'm not saying they should run everything. Like that's that's a different they kind of do, but yeah, conversation. <laughs> but we, they should at least be properly represented. You know? Yeah. What's your take on Elon and Twitter? Oh, I think it's. Uh, I've read a couple books on him. I find him fascinating. I'm very, I think it's a profoundly positive impact thus far in the fact that he's revealed the collaboration between, the illegal collaboration between the FBI and Twitter where they're directly censoring. So they have direct logins. They can censor certain politicians as well as certain doctors when it came to opinions around COVID. And that was, and they also have been censoring conservatives for many years. It was always a rumor, always kind of a conspiracy theory, but now I know it's, 
is in fact back. So he's been releasing those hard proof exchanges on their internal chats. So I think that was a very good move. The way he's built businesses throughout his whole career, I think he has a bigger picture in mind, although just by it on the simple sense of doing what's right in exchange for free speech, I think that was invaluable. The biggest mistakes the tech companies make. And I always wonder if you should attribute malice or stupidity. I always say you should probably think you should probably just assume they're stupid, hopefully they're not evil. But the tech companies, what they did in the past several years was, especially on platforms like YouTube and Twitter, they began to segment two audiences. And when you do that, you don't have the free exchange of ideas and debates where you can actually discuss philosophies. When you do that, you simply encroach people in further tribalism. So it's not good for society, it's just making people more entrenched in their ideas. And I think the best thing about the United States especially is that the open debate of free ideas is how the best ideas come to the surface, whether it's technology or social issues. So I think it's a smart acquisition. I think eventually it will be fiscally beneficial for him as well. And it is, it is a revolutionary move. We haven't seen anything like this in our lifetime. It's it's fascinating. Yeah. That long answer to your short question, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm it's I'm I'm very interested. I, I follow um for for a bunch of different reasons. The reasons you just expressed, right? Like the idea of, you know, open debate and exchange of ideas and critical thinking and being able to learn from other people and you know i learn a little bit from you maybe yeah. you take a little something from me like that's 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 how we Should as humans be. got to where we are today absolutely um and we we cannot allow that to break down um you know politics has been divided for as long as i've been on planet earth yeah. i mean it's never been a oh boy topic you know i mean yeah it, it's, it's always been problematic um and but i do think that something like a Twitter, it may not even be Twitter for all I know, I don't know, but something like that where um, anyone can express their ideas and if an idea gets enough public support, then more of the public becomes aware of it. Yep. I think that's good. Absolutely. Um, and th but then it comes with a whole slew of problems that I don't necessarily have solutions for, right? So how do you, people that are just, that are really and truly spreading misinformation right like just information that is not accurate yeah how do you how do you deal with that like i mean i some people say just let them do it and if it's not if it doesn't have any merit then people will not fall for it but then you get the sbfs of the world going back to crypto and yeah. you get a human scamming humans for billions of dollars it's i think that's a great that's a great question i think it kind of goes back to the I believe a wise man, I think it was Benjamin Franklin, said those who would trade freedom for security deserve neither. Yep. And unfortunately, there are always going to be you know theories that aren't accurate, but if you have the open exchange of ideas, you can have the proper accurate details over power or maybe a more appropriate term would be to debate them so good ideas come to the surface. My greatest concern is going back to a lot of things. Okay, who decides what is misinformation? Because it's already happened. Like, uh, as simple as the color policy of masks work, masks don't work. I mean, and then doctors were being censored on Twitter because it was misinformation. And that was because the government, they got to choose the definition of misinformation. That's my greatest concern is who's choosing the definition? Because you could, it's the same with, when it comes to a lot of rules and regulations, my concern is who is deciding that? Because they can manipulate anything these days to be, 
whatever they want it to be, similar to like when you're doing a poll and asking people their opinions about things. Just changing the question format will give you the results you want if you change it enough. You can so make a stat say whatever you want. Exactly. It's one of the most one of the few great things I learned in college is you know business statistics. Always remember what is your sample size. So I agree. There's there's always going to be misinformation in life, but I think the more you can properly address it and have the open exchange of ideas, the more the masses will see that exchange and the best ideas will come to the surface. But that is inherent risk. I think, personally, as long as you're not committing a federal crime in regards, I guess as defined as, I'm going to commit a specific threat to a person, with the exception of that, I don't think there should be any censorship on social media in terms of, like, if it's a just want to debate ideas or you want to say like i don't like this person like okay that's your opinion you can't threaten them but i would rather have more exchange of information information than less which is why i used to like um used to be a really popular web browser called DuckDuckGo. yeah and i used to love that because when i'm looking for information i want uncensored ideas i don't want i want to be the person in charge of filtering the information i want to look at all sides of the story and i want to see which side I find most compelling and see which perspective is interesting. And a couple months ago, they started to tailor that, and the CEO was quite adamant about starting to tailor in the content. And there's already plenty larger platforms like Google that do that for you. So they lost their competitive advantage, in my opinion. So a lot of my friends are using other alternatives these days. But have you messed around with Brave at all? Yep, that's my, that's yeah. my main one. I, yeah. I got on my phone and, and my computer. At how much? Right. I don't. How much do you know? How much exposure does Gemini have to FTX? Because I know. So Gemini, people that don't know, is um, a, a crypto exchange of sorts that has an integration with the Brave browser. Yes. And Brave gives you essentially rewards. You can talk about that. All you want. Oh yeah, it's revolutionary. Yeah. It, it's fascinating to see a couple of things I like. Like if a user were to open the Brave app, not only will he tell you like how much time and how much bandwidth you've saved in terms of no one's doing tracking you and, you know, you know, no one's starting to har farm your data. But it'll actually give you the option, hey, if you want to share this data with advertisers, we will incentivize you as opposed to just the, you know, the browser taking all the money, which is why those companies are so massively profitable is because of the back-end exchange of that finances for the data. Data brokers. So, yeah, giving the information to an actual person that's using it, that is a very revolutionary concept. I think I think a lot of people are kind of a little still afraid of the idea of digital currency. And I think as the billion dollar, the trillion dollar idea will be a company, a person, or entity that could bring confidence to the exchange of crypto to the point where I can go to any store, whip out my app or whatever asset it is, use that to buy anything. Because a lot of people I know are worried, like Bitcoin is prohibitively expensive it's almost i know you can buy fractions but it's just gets so it's high. like 17k it's right like, now for one bitcoin and, it, it, and we're like, in a bull run very yeah. bad dip right it's, it's not like very it's approachable for a lot of people exactly so it's, not, it's similar to like a lot of, well just like it's, ve it's very very similar to a stock a lot of people didn't want to invest in amazon or tesla because they're over 600 over 1200 dollars per share and you have you know the, well i know those apps you can buy the fractions of the stock but not as attractive as buying a stock where you can get you know 50 bucks or you know 30 bucks and buy two or three shares like full share so i think that's that's a revolutionary idea i like that brave does that though it's really it's pretty interesting so yeah um i could i've used so wallet so now i'm going to talk about crypto based wallets so we're talking 
self-custody wallets, right? I don't know how much you've gotten into this on your podcast or... Not yet. Okay. Uh, is it, are you talking physical and digital? Yeah, both. I know both. there's both. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So um, going back to the whole crypto thing, right? So if you're on a centralized exchange, the centralized exchange has the private keys to your cryptocurrency. Okay, so it's think about um, hashing, encryption. If, if you don't understand any of this stuff, okay, you have given your money to this centralized exchange. Call it FTX, call it Coinbase, call it Binance, whichever one you're using, right? You've given them money from your bank account in exchange for an amount of some cryptocurrency. This, we're just going to call it Ethereum, okay? Yeah. You, you, you bought $1,200, you, you have one Ethereum. So what that means is there's a accounting in a decentralized public ledger that shows the in input of your fiat currency in exchange for this Ethereum. It's hashed and signed with a public and private key. Okay, In this case, because you're using a centralized exchange, the centralized exchange keeps possession of that private key. So... You can spend that money, you can link back to that wallet address, and you can transact with it just fine. Yeah. But for any sort of settlement between businesses and finance and government and law enforcement, who owns that crypto? It's actually the exchange because they have the private key for that wallet address. So that's private keys on a centralized exchange. So the the most hardcore way, and I have a ledger, ledger or treasure, ledger specifically is a hardware wallet. Looks like a USB stick. Um, you can compare it with a f app on your phone. I don't use that. Um, and there's also a desktop app for your PC. So essentially, um, in my case, I have a ledger app running on a computer. That ledger app is synced to my physical ledger device as in literally like the physical usb ledger stick gets plugged into that computer that's running that application um, you go through the setup process of that uh, including you know establishing a seed of a passphrase essentially that's usually like 24 words that you use to reload that wallet mm -hmm. um, and, and in this case you have those private keys you use them so the downside to that is, is if you lose that private key, you will never gone. get those cryptos again. Like they're gone. Like yeah. without that private key, you cannot restore that wallet. Um, so there's that. But the good side is, is it's yours. Like no one can take it from you unless you just lose it and it gets stolen from you. Like the actual key itself. Yeah. Um, so that's that's the Ledger hardware self custody wallet. Ledger. Um, highly recommend anyone that's doing crypto. If you still have crypto on the exchanges, you are probably doing it wrong. Yeah, because um, they're in charge of it, not you. Yeah, and they can take your money and put it wherever so they want. Then right? there's software wallets or digital hot wallets, is, is what a lot of people call them. So these can be browser extensions. So if you run Chrome, you know er, people should be familiar with plugins. There's a plugin for MetaMask. Is I think it's currently the most popular hot wallet, and it's essentially a piece of software where Again, you can send real money to this hot wallet and it will exchange in a centralized way for whatever cryptocurrency you want. And then you can s connect that wallet with online applications. They call them dApps, decentralized applications. Mm -hmm. And then you can pay for products and services using your crypto wallet that's connected to that 
website, that digital yeah. decentralized application. So those are hot wallets. Um, and in those cases, uh, does the website have to accept it or can it be any website? Like, can you go on Amazon and buy a book with it or no, uh, the website has to be built in a way web three or decentralized app kind of way. It's gotta be, there's some code that's gotta happen there. And usually it's going to be talking Ethereum contract language, smart contract language, solidity. That would be the language that you need. Um, so where we're at, so hot wallets, um, talked about cold wallets that's the ledger offline you you own your own keys hot wallets metamask is the most popular one coinbase coinbase uh, they've kind of shot themselves in the foot you you go into the billion trillion dollar idea i do yeah. think that whoever delivers the most valuable wallet infrastructure for crypto is that's the going to be a huge idea and personally opinion i think coinbase shot themselves in the foot because you've got coinbase right there's the you can use the internet and go to a desktop browser and use the internet to go to their website. Yep. You can use the app on your phone, right? Coinbase. But then they also have Coinbase Wallet, like which is confusing. No, it's it's the wallet that I was just describing for, oh, okay. for decentralized hot wallets, right? So a way to have your crypto in a web browser plugin that's in a crypto wallet. It's a hot wallet. Yeah. Well, they call theirs Coinbase Wallet. It's confusing to people. It's confusing to people because you're yeah. thinking, okay, I've got this wallet. I've got my Coinbase account. Yeah. What do you mean I've got a Coinbase wallet? I thought I. it's confusing. I think they did themselves a disservice in the naming. So if anyone at Coinbase hears that, <laughs> you know. Fix it. It's hearsay, you know, not financial advice, but, you know, you might want to do something with that. Marketing. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot of companies that are working on on, on that because we're not the only ones oh yeah. that realize yeah. <laughs> that that's a billion-dollar idea. Whoever solves that. There's a business revenue model there for sure. I wouldn't be surprised if the largest exchange on the planet, if you know, Visa was already working on something in the back rooms. Yeah, and it's that's really wild to me. So that kind of be the shooting themselves in the foot though, because it and it's going to be wild to me to see where this ends up. Yeah, because so day job stuff. I do. I work with payment card industry, going through verifying. You know the the readers, the encryption technology, yeah. the servers. Where's your Where's your data? Does it have PAN and all this PCI? The payment card industry. We're talking about oh yeah. swiping your card to pay for things. Oh yeah. Well, now through through multiple Ledger, the ho- hard wallet, the hardware wallet that we're talking about, through Ledger, you can get a Visa debit card that's tied to your Ledger crypto balance. Really? So you can have a Ledger hardware wallet with crypto in it that you bought from ledger via their application and then the the crypto that's in your ledger is tied to a visa card issued to you by ledger and then you can swipe that anywhere you would swipe a visa but you're spending your crypto really that's already a thing that's kind it's of already a thing meanwhile the the payment card industry and the government with, with the regulators they don't know how to regulate it they haven't built framework so going back to what i was one of the things i was getting to earlier so xrp cryptocurrency was built by the big bankers for them to replace the swift system swift system is one of the banking processes used to settle international transactions between banks is that the largest system or it is okay it is the largest is it the only or it's not okay so they're not other organization like bricks they're they've built their own there's a few different competitors in that space. I know Swift but came the up US a lot. dollar is the central currency of the world, right? 
and it's used in the SWIFT system for international bankers to resolve their international buying and selling of goods and services, right? Built by bankers for bankers to replace an international banking system, and they were promptly sued by the SEC. Really? Securities Exchange Commission, right? So this was like a year and a half or two years ago. This is a pretty famous case. It's, it's supposed to be resolved in, in the spring of this coming year, right? So kind of what I'm trying to do is paint a picture here, right? It, what I'm proposing is I think the government is in a good position to provide a not to provide clarity on a framework for how crypto can play. How does crypto pay play in the commerce world? How does it play with government? How does it play with business? It can provide that framework. Yeah. It has not done that, and that is something that our government is – one of the things they excel at. Here are your, here are your guide rails. If you come outside of these lines, we're coming for you. Yeah. Well, we've been pretty good at that, we can, but we haven't even done that much yet. Yeah. Like we've got a long way to go, man. I think the FTX is definitely a, a signal or, or everyone is definitely something that's going to get everyone's attention. So uh, the discussions are happening more often now, thankfully. Yeah, and, you know, everyone's scrambling. So uh, when I say everyone, like Binance, Coinbase, Coinbase is actually in a pretty good position relatively, um, but a lot of the major exchanges are scrambling for what they're saying as proof of reserves. I don't know if you've heard that phrase or not. No, wh so wh what's that? So – when you're a crypto, this is, this is sort of banking stuff, big sort of financial regulation stuff, but when you hold deposits for customers, you're supposed to be able to prove that you are holding a certain percentage, a certain percent, whatever that, like diff depending on what classification of the asset is, it might be a different requirement, but you have to be able to prove that you've got some measurable amount of this held physically in your possession. That's probably what FTX got in trouble for because they didn't do that. They were making yeah. loans without having any other physical money to do it with. Yeah, it's illegal, you know. <sighs> yeah, there's really smart people working on really good solutions to a lot of these problems, but at the end of the day, humans, you know, we're never, we're always going to have some scammers. I, I don't think yeah. we're ever going to be able to get that out of out of us, um, but it's going to take us building a framework in a way to keep ourselves safe while we use this technology. Agree. And that, that's what, at the end of the day, that's what's going to make everyone more comfortable with it, using it and adopting the technology. Is, is it safe and is it a comfortable experience? Is it something that you can trust? Yeah. Yeah, so there's a lot of people building them. Like I said, Ledger and Treasure, they're the two largest manufacturers for the hardware wallets. You've mm -hmm. got MetaMask. They've got a plug-in for any browser on any computer you like. They have, they have apps for your phones. That's MetaMask. Coinbase Wallet has a decentralized app for hot wallet self-custody of cryptocurrencies. There's a lot of different flavors of that out there. Um, and then NFTs in general. So one of the things, there's this whole like the last 18 months, there was this huge like upswing and then downswing in NFT space. Mm. Um, but it's been a really fun learning experience for me, like how to identify potentially quality products, projects rather, okay. um, how to spot potentially rug or scam projects, and then what's the value proposition? Why why am I even interested in some NFT thing, right? Right. So 
you know, there's these Discord servers where people join, and it might be a whole group of people that are entrepreneurs and business owners and business founders, and they meet to just talk business. And, hey, I ate a pound of chicken, like diet and exercise and just positive things, right? And then, oh, um, I'm working on this project where we're, we're developing this video game, and we need some digital assets. Oh, well, my buddy over here makes digital app. It's yeah. just a networking tool, right? And then what winds up happening is some really valuable things start getting created out of these tools. Things like being able to register a closing for a real estate transaction yeah. digitally as an NFT. Like, that's how these things happen. You've got people that are active in the space. They meet. They talk. They brainstorm. They have pitch ideas. And then someone says, hey, I've got this real-world business thing that I'm trying to do. And someone says, I can do that for you. And next thing you know, yeah. someone closes a house purchase with an NFT. That's pretty cool. I didn't like know they These things that. happen. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that happened in Florida. Oh, really? Um, so, you know, Board Ape Yacht Club's the most famous one. You know, monkeys, right? Pictures of monkeys oh, yeah. and all that <laughs> good stuff. You know, millions of dollars. You got the famous star sponsoring these unicorn products. Um, and, you know, good for them. You know what I mean? Yeah. And they've built a community. They, they have parties. They have... <laughs> So I don't own any of their products, but I've, I follow their community pretty closely. And, and they do real-world gaming events where they'll have, like, puzzles mm-hmm. where in the real world, people all across the world have to collaborate to solve these riddles. Maybe you have to go to London to get one clue, and then you have to go to some Buddhist temple in Thailand to get another clue. And so they coordinate across their community, across the whole world, to find all these hints and solve these riddles yeah. and then when when the community their community has solved them all they throw a massive party mm-hmm. well from a marketing perspective if you're disney if you're any of these major players in that space you're looking at that going how do we do that yeah i mean so i don't think it's going away i, I think things nfts are going to change how they're used the use cases will grow but blockchain technology is not going away. Uh, I'm excited to see the ways that people can benefit from blockchain when it's used in a healthy, successful way and not from a greedy, corporate, selfish, just criminal kind of way. I mean, yeah. I, I'm pretty tired of hearing about people getting scammed in crypto. Absolutely. I mean, we all probably know somebody. It's you just got to teach people how to be safe. You know? Absolutely. But then they got to want to. You know, like <laughs> right now, what's the value proposition of crypto? You yeah. know, like it just seems like really risky. It fluctuates That's a lot. Yeah. Right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, David. I really appreciate it. Thank you for your service. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Topping Talks also is again on YouTube, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. Don't forget to subscribe, like, comment, tell your family, tell your friends, tell your enemies. Heck, tell anyone. Just stay safe. Y'all have a great day. <laughs>